like John Wayne, the heroes who best embodied militant Christian masculinity were those unencumbered by real traditional Christian values and virtues. In this way, militant Christian masculinity linked religious leaders and secular conservatism, helping to secure an alliance with profound political ramifications. For many evangelicals, these militant heroes would come to define not only Christian manhood, but Christianity itself. So those are the words of Kristen Cobes Dumay, who is a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. She holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame, and her research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics, which has probably kept her quite busy over the last couple of years. Uh, she has written for the Washington Post, NBC News, Religion News Service, Christianity Today, and the Daily Beast, and has been interviewed on NPR, CBS, and BBC, amongst countless other outlets. So her book, Jesus and John Wayne, which is in itself just a wildly fascinating title, is one of the reasons why I wanted to have her on the show. I have been wanting to have a conversation about the sort of intersection between masculinity, fundamental Christianity or evangelical Christianity, and politics. Because over the last several years, I have noticed this sort of quagmire, this enigma that has come up in our culture that, that for a long time... I was trying to digest. I really didn't understand it, you know, and as a man who works with men, I've, I've worked with thousands and thousands and thousands of men now. There was, you know, a sort of, a sort of type of man that I really had a tough time understanding. And it was the man who had, who sort of taken Jesus Christ and turned him into this, what Kristen calls the warrior Christ, you know, the, the, the version of Jesus that, that advocates for war. And over the last number of years, I've seen more and more and more people, specifically men, because we're talking about men, this is a man talk show. I've seen more men sharing this very staunchly conservative version of Christianity and of Jesus Christ to the point where Christ all of a sudden has been conscripted by American politics, by American patriotism and nationalism, and he has become this sort of poster child for a version of American evangelical Christianity that advocates for things that I never could find in the Bible. And so some context here, you know, I grew up Roman Catholic. Um, I, I went to you know, son, I went to church every single Sunday with my family growing up. I went to Bible studies. I went to Sunday school. I read the Old Testament, the New Testament. I studied theology in college. I studied, you know, the, the difference between Catholicism and Christianity and uh, the different sects. And I studied Buddhism and Jainism and Hinduism and uh, all the isms. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly not an expert in this field, but I have some understanding of the different variations, uh, you know, of religions and what they all stand for and what the, the sort of players in, in each, in each version really mean to represent. And the Christ that I grew up with, the, the Jesus that I grew up with, and I'm not a practicing Christian today for a number of reasons, but that's a different podcast. The Christ that I grew up with never advocated for war or hatred he never involved himself in politics. He wasn't 
pro-democratic or you know he wasn't a democrat he wasn't a republican he or, or whatever they had 2000 years ago he he didn't go along with politics he actually didn't play the game of politics at all he certainly didn't advocate for war right i mean here is a man who represents love inclusivity inclusion loving thy neighbor acceptance forgiveness uh, welcoming people of different ethnicities, different trades, different religions, different political choices, different everything into his circle to the point where he welcomes and befriends somebody who literally wants him dead, right? Wants to kill him. So this is a man who not once in anywhere that I can recall, and maybe I'm wrong on this and somebody can, can you know, course correct me on that, not once in anything that I ever read, did, did Christ pick up a weapon against anyone else? Never once did he advocate for, for the killing of people that went against him. Here we are in our modern day culture, and what I have seen is, a, is an abundance of memes spreading around where Christ has now become the embodiment of the American patriotic conservative represent representative you know he's become the sort of poster child for what it means to be a good american conservative man and to the point where i've seen jesus with maga hats i've seen jesus with assault rifles and pistols advocating for uh you know open carry and going to war in in different countries and you know killing different ethnicities and for years i sat back and scratched my head and thought what in the actual hell is going on because that is that is the antichrist <laughs> i mean it's like literally the antithesis of who i thought jesus was and what he represented and you know who I've heard so many priests and preachers and popes and whomever, right? Nuns talk about. I have never heard of a Christ who is this sort of warrior. And so to see Jesus be conscripted by American patriotism, by certain parts of American conservatism, was very wild to me. And for a long time, I didn't understand it. And so I wanted to have Kristen on the show to talk about it. But I just want to preface this by saying, this is in no way to to put people down, right? This is in no way an attack on on anyone who might believe this. It's specifically for me to go on an adventure of trying to understand this. And I think in the last year, specifically during COVID and the pandemic, I actually got it. Like I really got why there are so many men who like this idea of Jesus being a, a gun-carrying, mega hat-wearing, uh, Republican voting Christ. And it's for me, it's for this reason. It's because we live in arguably one of the most chaotic times in existence. It's very challenging. And I, again, uh, you know, if you went back into ancient times, I'm sure things were very chaotic. Of course, we know that. But what I'm saying is that right now, mentally, cognitively, it is wildly chaotic. 
people's identities, people's lives are more complex, are more nuanced than ever before. Making a very simple decision about who you are or what you should do in your life has become very challenging. And so in a time where we have entered into higher and higher entropic states mentally, where we've entered into higher and higher chaotic states psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, right? 42% of Americans identify as spiritual but non-religious. So more and more people are moving away from these sort of traditional uh, religious values and, and structures. More and more, there's uncertainty and disorganization. And, and most people are really having a, a tough time, not most, but many people are having a tough time trying to figure out where they stand in this sort of mess that has become society. And so here is this section, the sect of evangelical Christianity, because again, it's not all evangelical men that believe this. Not all evangelical men believe that Jesus Christ, you know, should advocates for open carry and gun violence and, and that kind of stuff. But there's a certain sect that has militarized Christ. And I think the reason for that is that it creates a very clear, very concise, very well-documented version of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a Christian, an evangelical Christian man in 2021. Like it is there. It's, and there's, and there's no complications. There's no confrontation. So if you're a, if you're a, an evangelical Christian man within modern culture and you believe in this version of Jesus Christ, it creates some level of coherence and ease in your life. Because in many ways, this version of Jesus takes the best things that you love about your country, takes the best things that you love about your religion, and smashes them together. And so you never have to worry about you know, your country going to war and bombing innocent women and children. You never have to worry about questioning how you should respond as a man, as a husband, as a father, because it's laid out there for you. So in a, in a time where we as a culture and a society in North America have entered into a very disconnected, distorted state where there is a massive amounts of confusion that is, that's almost palpable, this provides a sense of clarity where you can remove yourself as a man, from having to really worry, you don't, I mean, of course, they probably, you know, everyone has worries in life. This isn't to say that they aren't worrying, but you don't have to question, where do I stand on things like abortion? Where do I stand on hard issues like Black Lives Matter or political issues? Where do I stand on financial issues? Where do I stand on geopolitic, geopolitical issues? Where do I stand on environmental issues? Well, you don't need to worry. You don't need to really think about it because your version of Christianity has mapped it out for you in a way that combines all of the sort of traditional American beliefs and patriotic values uh, and, and nationalistic virtues and just basically stuffed them into Jesus Christ and made him the poster child for it. And it sort of put a nice little bow on it and solved all the problems. So I know I'm saying that in sort of a, a satirical way, but I, I do believe that that is why, that's why so many people follow this path. 
It's there because it's easy. It's there because it's clear. It's there because there's order and there's structure. And in a time where we are, as a culture, most people are experiencing an immense amount of lacking uh, order and lacking structure, this provides a sense of continuity. And so in many ways, I actually get it, right? I get it because think about yourself as a man listening to this show. What do you want in life? You want things to be clear. You want your problems to be solved. You want to understand what direction you are taking yourself and your life and your career. You want to understand how to make decisions quickly and simply in life. You want to be efficient. You want to be tactical. And you want to be able to move through life with some sense of ease. And so in a time of absolute chaos and in a time where it's very challenging to make some of these decisions because we are faced with very big decisions in our culture today, in our time, in this in this present moment in history. This way of being, this theology, this version of evangelical Christianity provides a type of clarity that I think is actually quite desirable and desired by a lot of men and maybe some women, I don't know, but certainly for a lot of men. And so that's all to say, I understand it a little bit more clearly. Hopefully that has brought some insight to you in understanding, you know, if you've seen those memes flying around, you're like, what, what the hell? Like, <laughs> I'm a Christian. <laughs> I don't think I, I recall Jesus, you know, advocating for picking up a spear or a sword or, you know, attacking people. And if this has perplexed you as well, hopefully this brought some clarity to you. But let's welcome Kristen Cobes Dumay onto the show because she will help to shed a little bit more light on this as well. And we're going to go deep into this topic and how this came to be. So without any further delay, please welcome Kristen. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, I really, yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation. I, I feel like I'm very fortunate to have some of the conversations and some of the people that I have on the show. And this is one that I've been looking forward to. My production manager, Aaron, has been looking forward to for a long time. <laughs> he usually puts together, helps me put together like quick notes for the show. And this one was quite robust, just like pages, <laughs> pages of information that I was like reading through in quotes. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is a, this is amazing. Okay, before we dive into the book, before we dive into what we are here to talk about, which I think is going to be wildly fascinating, I, I, w I have to do my listeners a service because whenever I miss this question, I get DM'd about it. So tell us a story about a defining moment in your life. Okay, I would say a defining moment would be a senior year in high school. And in that year, I took off and became an exchange student in Germany. My family, I grew up in Northwest Iowa, small town. For a couple of years, my family moved to Tallahassee, Florida. I was in this big public high school coming from a small Christian school. And it was it was great. And then my family moved back to Iowa. And I thought, no, I can't do that. So I applied and was accepted into an international exchange program. So I spent a year in Germany. And that was such a defining year for me. Not only did I learn German, full immersion, attended German high school, but I realized over time I came to see my own culture from a distance, right? And I, I so I came back to the United States and into college with all sorts of questions about things I had always taken for granted about American nationalism. I mm. had a lot to answer for in Germany in terms of why are Americans such flag wavers and don't, you know, that's dangerous. In terms of my understanding of Christianity, all the things that I'd really taken for granted, I came to view with greater curiosity. And I think that really set me up 
on a path to to become a U.S. historian and and try to answer some of those questions. I'm still on that path today. Incredible, incredible. Okay, well, that thank you for for that context. I think that gives a little bit more flavor to what we're going to talk about here today, and and maybe what set you on that path. So you wrote this book, which I mean, the title. I almost want to spend time on how you came up with this title, but the title is "Jesus and John Wayne: How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation," and. I think it speaks for itself, but maybe if you can just give me, the listener, a little bit more context for like what prompted you to dive into this subject, especially in a time where these pieces are very much have been very much front and center. Yeah, so the the roots of this book go back many years, more than fifteen years actually. So I was a new professor at Calvin University. It's a Christian liberals college in the Midwest, and I was teaching a course on U.S. history. And I I gave a lecture on Teddy Roosevelt. And I did that intentionally to show my students how gender worked in history, how ideas of masculinity, in this case in particular, change over time, how it's linked to economic shifts and to foreign policy and to race and religion and all sorts of things. And it was after that class period that a couple of guys came up to me and said, Professor Dumay, there's this book you have to read. And that was John Aldridge's book, Wild at Heart. Hmm. And any evangelical of a certain age knows exactly where this is going. That book went on to sell more than 4 million copies. I took their advice. I, I got a hold of it and I opened it up. And sure enough, right in the front is a quote from Teddy Roosevelt and went on to, which I just lectured about to show them how amazing gender was in history, all the things it could do. And it turns out Aldridge was doing the same thing with this conception of masculinity. It was a very militant, militaristic conception of quote unquote Christian manhood. Every man has a battle to fight and a beauty to rescue. God is a warrior. God and man is made in his image. And so right then and there, I knew that this was something I needed to wrestle with um, because at the same time, this was back in 2005, 2006 during the Iraq war and uh, the early years. And we had all this survey data coming out showing how white evangelicals were far and away more likely to support the Iraq war, preemptive war in general, to condone the use of torture, all of this stuff. And, and so I just, I asked what historians had asked of Teddy Roosevelt before, you know, what might one have to do with the other? And one of the things I noticed right away in looking at Aldridge's work and other writers on Christian manhood at the time was that they 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 weren't really drawing from the scriptures very much they were they were drawing from hollywood heroes from Mel Gibson's William Wallace. And in many cases, the actor John Wayne kept popping up as this kind of icon of, of masculinity. And so that was really interesting to me. And that's where the title of the book came from. Now, that was a long time ago. I ended up setting the project aside for a variety of reasons. One, I wasn't quite sure, like it felt really really extreme. Some of the material I was reading at the time, I wasn't sure if this was mainstream, is this fringe? I didn't really know what to do with it. I pulled the research back out in the fall of 2016 when I realized it was far more mainstream than I had ever anticipated. And and that's that's when the book actually kind of came to be and pulling out some of that old research. So can you maybe just speak a little bit more about what happened within evangelical culture that took Jesus, who, I mean, you know, Christ is a is a figure unto itself that we could have hours and hours and hours of conversation about. But I think that it took Christ, who's, who's largely an advocate for peace, you know, social coherence, acceptance, and, and really true, like true acceptance, you know, like unconditional acceptance, not just acceptance of people that you like, but acceptance of people that sort of break 
the the mold of of what your social values are, maybe what your religious beliefs are. And I think what's interesting is that the evangelicals have sort of taken this character and not all, right? I think we should maybe preface that. Not all, but there seems to be a subset of evangelicals that have taken him and turned him into like this gun-toting, warmongering symbol masculinity that is meant to stand for something that I've just never seen in the Bible. And I think to the to the degree that I've I've witnessed a lot of men online, I've even seen men online posting pictures of, you know, Jesus with mega hats and Jesus with assault rifles. And I'm like, I this like the the cognitive dissonance that it creates, I just I can't seem to grasp it. And so I would love to hear like maybe a little bit of the history of of that transition or what started to happen within evangelical culture that allowed for that that leap that seems so massive. Yeah, this is really is the corrupted the faith part of the subtitle. And Jesus and John Wayne is a, is a work of history. But there is this little critical edge as well. So where I'm kind of taking evangelicals at their word, right? Evangelicals self-identify as Bible-believing Christians. Mm-hmm. And and then I, I am suggesting in the critical framing of this book that that there is something going on here, a corruption, precisely what you're you're spelling out of, of who Jesus is at the heart of the gospels. Because when I read the the uh, the gospels and when I when I read about Christ, it just seems like over and over again, Jesus subverts human expectations, right? That uh, expectations for what a Messiah was supposed to be and to do. And uh, this isn't about human power structures. This is about you know Jesus divests himself of power, and that's the radical nature of, of the gospel of Christ. And it is then to follow Christ is to to follow that that self sacrifice. And, and so, so there's that kind of critical edge where what I see happening over history is that this other model of Christian masculinity gets elevated. What it means to be a man is to be aggressive, to be a fighter. And, and I trace this back to the Cold War era, where in the 1940s and 1950s, evangelicals really stressed the masculine role of protector and provider in the Cold War context. And because of the Cold War, protector is especially important. And it's not metaphorical, right? You need to actually protect faith, family, and nation against communism, which was anti-God, anti-Christian, and anti-family. And, and it, it was a military threat, so we need military protect, protection. Well, fortunately, God had filled men with testosterone to give them this aggression, and that needed to be channeled in this direction. And that's the way that social order was protected. And, and so you can see that. You can you can trace this back. You can see this reasoning spelled out quite plainly in evangelical sermons and in teachings on manhood and womanhood, masculinity, femininity, even in evangelical sex manuals. And that's a thing uh, back in the 60s and so on. <laughs> I, right. I definitely want to I definitely want to get my hands on one of those. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. I didn't uh, even know that that existed. It just blew my mind with that. Evangelical sex manual seems like an oxymoron. Yeah, it's a show. No, no, right? There's a lot there. And so, <laughs> so what you see happening then is the formation of this vision of Christian masculinity that really privileges fighting. 
that privileges this need for aggression because the threat is so real, right? The communist threat. But then what happens is this, this threat keeps morphing. So it's communism, it's feminism, it's secular humanism. It's if you kind of trace this history out, it's, you know, this culture wars, liberalism, it's radical Islam, and, and it, you can trace it all the way up to the present. So the threat keeps changing, but the militancy is what holds constant. One of the things that I came to see in this book is initially I kind of thought this evangelical militancy, right, in politics in particular, is, is kind of this response to fear, right? They're, they feel pushed into a corner. There's demographic changes. There's threats to religious liberty, right? This is kind of the narrative of understanding the evangelical vote in 2016. What I came to see historically is that more often than not, the militancy came first. And then you had prominent evangelical leaders. You can see this very specifically played out in, in, in situations that they actively stoked fear in the hearts of their followers in order to sustain their own power. And, and so militancy usually came first. What we see then is in, in the case of Christ, all right, Jesus of the Gospels, Jesus himself, gets transformed into the image of this warrior so that Jesus is described by somebody like Mark Driscoll as you know a, a warrior with tattoos down his leg, riding into battle on horseback, wielding this bloody sword, slaying his enemies. And so that ultimately transforms not just the Jesus of the gospels, but ultimately Christianity itself. Like from a uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm like missing a part of the connection, but like from a scriptural standpoint, what basis does this get rooted in? Because I think <laughs> that from what I mean, you know, I grew up Roman Catholic. I read the Bible. I read Old Testament, New Testament, and uh, you know, I'm not a I'm not necessarily a practicing Christian today by any means. But I just cannot recall or fathom any scripture. Old Testament or New Testament coming from Jesus being used as a means of turning it into what you're talking about, right? This like warrior Christ, which you talk about in the book. So, I mean, is that just a manufacturer? You know, is that almost like a like the propaganda machine, the patriot of the nationalist infusing itself with the with the religious doctrine? Like, how how does that start to interweave? Well, the favorite book of the Bible within this genre is the book of Revelation, right? That's where you do have bloody battles, and that's where mm -hmm. you can get this imagery and, and swords. And now, of course, in the book of Revelation, the sword is coming from Jesus' mouth, but that's where you have this kind of apocalyptic imagery. And, and that's a favorite, it, it, again, within this genre. But what you have also is this, this explicit rejection of other passages. So things like, you know, oh, you can't, you, you can't really be a man by turning the other cheek. No, no, like explicitly rejecting that command or, you know, loving your neighbor as yourself. Somebody like Mr. Rogers is, does not come off well in this literature. Like Mr. Mr. Rogers is the guy you want to avoid being like, that's kind of the whistle of American Christianity, mm. you don't want that kind of, you know, neighborly love stuff because the, the, the moment, and again, the moment keeps shifting, but the moment is always so critical and the threat is always so real that for this time and place, you do not want 
that kind of softness. I, this mm. this particular moment, whatever moment we find ourselves in, calls for something different, calls for this toughness. And again, it's the book of Revelation that offers the most imagery here. But a lot of the scriptures, particularly in the gospels, are really set aside. Loving your neighbor, loving your enemies, the fruit of the spirit. A lot of that is considered kind of feminine mm-hmm. or or just not practical, not for this moment. Yes, I mean, it's so fascinating because the Christ archetype or symbol or however we want to talk about that, or even just Christ as a man or Christ as a son of God, was really this almost like androgynous character in in the way that that he's portrayed because he does have the balance, the masculine and the feminine, right? And he is meant to portray, and I think that's the case with most spiritual entities that are that are sort of front and center right the buddha christ many of these characters are the representation the the dualistic nature that exists within us right whether we want to call it yin and yang or masculine and feminine or whatever the case may be and it seems to be that there's a a case for turning christ into a a hyper masculine figure based on what i'm hearing you say for a almost like for the ends or the means of power, of being able to control people, of being able to push a very small, condensed version of what masculinity should look like so that there's not compliance, although compliance seems to be the word that comes to mind. So I, I'm just throwing some things out there. I would love for you to just comment on that if you yeah. can. No, this is absolutely, it's a book about power. It's a book about power. And I think the tension that you're you're pointing to is, you know, what is the relationship between Christianity and power? And what is the model of Christ here? And this kind of masculine, you know, rugged, militant Jesus suggests that that relationship is Christians ought to seize power. They ought to claim power because the ends will justify the means. Again, the Mm. threats are so real and you have God on your side. And so you need to seize the reins of power. And so this vision of militant Christian manhood that emerges during the Cold War era is intimately tied to Christian nationalism, right? Again, this idea that you have to defend faith, family and nation. And it's a military defense to defend the nation and therefore to defend the faith and the family as well. And so it's very closely linked up to Christian nationalism and the idea, it's the assertion of power, of military power, of worldly power, of political power that is going to preserve the one true faith. And and that that is really up to them, to conservative evangelicals, as, as they perceive themselves to be a kind of faithful remnant within American Christianity, within American and culture more generally. So they feel like there is this real burden that they carry. And in order to uh, fulfill what they are called to do, they need to assert power. They need to protect that power. They need to maintain that power. And it is a very worldly power. And that's where you can have, again, the ends will justify the means in, in the realm of politics, in the realm of foreign policy, right? And so you've got a figure like Ollie North, who becomes this hero to conservative evangelicals precisely because he models this, right? The ends will justify the means. He does what needs to be done. And ultimately, he has God on his side. Yeah, that has always seemed to be the quagmire for me, you know, is the <laughs> is this sort of ignoring the Christian-based values, right? The Christ, Christ-based values, 
and sacrificing those for the means of upholding some some ideology and that that's always seemed to be so counter to me that that that, that I haven't really been able to understand it but I really appreciate what you're saying now because I think it gives some context I think the challenge is that when I hear what you're saying there's a part of me that's like well isn't it okay to protect our families you know to or to want to protect our families or to to want to protect our communities and I think that that the how do I want to say it that that's that's fine until it's taken to the extreme of it being the sole function the like primary north star of our identity right i think jung would have something to say about it in the sense that when that protector or heroic archetype becomes at the forefront and believes that it's sort of like the omnipotent being that it needs to then claim power the hero can very quickly contort itself into the villain right it can very quickly exactly. find itself on the wrong side and and that its values and its beliefs can very quickly get turned against it in in some capacity is that is what i'm saying sort of line up with what you've seen Oh, definitely. You're right. There's nothing wrong with it. Protection is a noble quality. Protecting your family, protecting your nation, all of that's great and and necessary, right? Then what we can see happening is very quickly, this idea of kind of a defensive mode slips into an offensive mode Mm. through preemptive war. You can see that in terms of foreign policy. You can see that in terms of culture wars, politics. Once you kind of define the enemy um, as, you know, the threat is out there and and threats are are many (laughs) and, and again, shifting. And, and if you start to identify everything as a threat, you can very easily justify preemptive attack. Again, whether it's in domestic politics, whether it's in foreign policy. And so then this line becomes very quickly blurred between what is protecting and what is becoming the aggressor. But if you see yourself as righteous, as as good, and again, God is on your side and you are trying to protect God (laughs) and protect Christianity, protect all that is good, it can justify all kinds of things, including atrocities committed, right, aggressively in in defense of of your own power, essentially. And that's what we see happening. And 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 then it's it's all cloaked with this righteousness because it's it's cloaked with this idea that we are doing this for because we are on God's side of anything. And you can see how that works in, in the case of Vietnam. You can see how that works in the case of a kind of dirty politics. So much can be justified. And, and you also have again, this kind of corruption of the faith that Christianity itself does become contorted. And, and it's no coincidence that, you know, as you suggest, these kind of traditional Christian virtues get set aside. So it's no coincidence that they they look to somebody like John Wayne, who was not evangelical, right? Not known for his traditional values. Or more recently, somebody like Donald Trump, right? Both of these guys are perfect precisely because they were not constrained by traditional Christian virtue. You know, let's look at the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Like in, in the Bible, these are not labeled feminine virtues, although essentially that's how they're perceived in conservative evangelical circles oftentimes. And these are not attributes that make for this kind of tough 
warrior masculinity, not at all, which is why paradoxically, it's the men who have not been shaped by traditional Christian virtue, right? Mm. These secular warriors who inspire and that they're brought in and they are kind of the epitome, this warrior culture that is what is needed in order to protect the faith. And that's precisely how somebody like Donald Trump sold himself, right? Not as the best Christian in the world, but as the man who was going to protect Christianity. And that's exactly how he was embraced as their ultimate warrior champion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well said, ultimate warrior champion. Yeah. Their words, not mine. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think, I mean, it's it's what has been, what's sort of fascinating to me is, I, I can't remember who said it. I'm sure it'll, it'll some, somebody will be able to message me and let me know who it was, but somebody said something along the lines of like more people have been killed and more wars have been fought by religions trying to prove that their gods are more noble and peaceful than the other ones. And it's like, how ironic. But I think in many ways, and this is where I want to start to speak about the, you know, the role that nationalism and, and patriotism begins to play in the sort of turning or evolution of evangelical Christianity is that it, it seems almost as though that when we start to take the the war machine you know when we start to take the the post-industrial military complex america and all of its virtues and its values as being seen as the sort of like number one protector of the world and and you know this sort of like military machine that can go off and fight wars and is protecting other countries and etc that those values infuse with the evangelical nature and i'm curious if you think that one has played into the other more or less, and maybe it's not about more or less, but maybe speaking to what the role nationalism and patriotism has been in that sort of evolutionary turn within Christianity, within evangelical Christianity. Yeah, it's it's both and, right? It's it's it becomes impossible to separate the kind of influence of of patriotism, militarism on evangelicalism, and then the other way around, right? Historically, you can just see how intertwined these things are. So in the book, I write about not just this kind of militarization of American evangelicalism, but I also look at the evangelizing that takes place within the military. And it is this, this symbiotic relationship. And somebody like James Dobson is right at the center of this, that his, you know, Dobson's family values evangelicalism is being taught throughout the military, even today, like the military is actively consuming and amplifying these conservative evangelical voices on things like family values, on things like how to manage your money, you know, the Dave, Dave Ramsey plan and all of that. It's, it's really has infiltrated. And at the same time, you see this, you know, these kind of military values are embraced by evangelical pastors and writers. And so the military is seen as this model of virtue and model of authority and frankly of using violence to achieve order. And so it's very symbiotic. It goes back and forth. I don't think it's it's really a chicken and egg, egg situation. That's not how mm -hmm. history works. It's just intertwined from decade to decade, generation to generation. And so they're, they're, it becomes very difficult to separate things out. I will say, as you pointed out before, right, this is not all evangelicals and not all white evangelicals. Mm -hmm. There's always been what one historian, David Swartz, has termed the moral minority, right? There is an evangelical left. There has been for this you know, half century and more that has, has drawn from the Christian scriptures, teachings that are you know, feminist, 
that are pro-civil rights, that are anti-militarist. And, and this has been a, a kind of a, a, a vocal and dissenting minority, but it's important to keep that power dynamic in, in mind, right? This is a minority and you have the kind of popular evangelicalism. And in that uh, kind of popular culture, this Christian nationalism, patriotism intertwined with their faith is just the air they breathe. It's really hard for them to perceive this, even as as its own thing. You know, I'll hear a lot of conservative evangelicals say, I don't even know what Christian nationalism is. It's not a thing, right? Because it's just Christianity to them. Christian nationalism so pervades their understanding of the faith. It's just taken for granted. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Well, th- thank you for that distinction. I, I mean, I, what has, again, there's so many pieces to this conversation that I want to dig into, but I think one of the interesting things for me that I would like to go back and touch on before we start to talk about the impact on on the nation and and the role that it's played within the division within America is just the, the conversation about masculinity and the role that it plays within the evangelical culture, within this specific evangelical culture from from your perspective because I think you talk about in the book how like initiation rites are used like the church and the and the church fathers sort of co-opt medieval knighthood initiation rituals involving symbols of the warrior and 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 the bible and, and shotguns and stuff like that and so can you speak a little bit more to that and and the, maybe like the function that that serves because I think for me well, I'll, I'll let you go. I'll, let, I'll just let you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So much to say there. So you have to kind of understand how evangelicals operate in terms of if you attend an evangelical church, which could be a church in the Southern Baptist Convention, a non-denominational church. It could even be a mainline church that's been really deeply influenced by evangelical culture, which is a lot of the American mainline, by the way. You're likely to be invited to attend a Bible study, a small group Bible study, as, as they call them. And those Bible studies are often gender specific. So a women's Bible study or a men's group is, is what you're going to be invited to attend. And, and so a very gender segregated and evangelicalism, ten, conservative evangelicalism certainly is, is it, it, it's very important to distinguish the genders and, and there's a way to be a Christian man and there's a way to be a Christian woman. And often these are kind of presented as opposites. Mm-hmm. So Christian biblical femininity, biblical masculinity, and so on. So you're in this sex segregated space, and then you you need something to do. So there's these are book studies usually, right? Or you bring in a speaker or you, you read this these books. And so there's this massive Christian publishing industry that people outside this world are completely oblivious to. Like I went outside of Christian publishing to write this book. I went with a secular publisher and I had some conversations with my editor where early on he was he was raising some questions. He he wasn't believing the 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 print runs that I was citing. He's like, no, no, this can't be. And then we verified, like, no, it really is, right? This is just invisible to people outside of this world. But we're talking mm-hmm. millions of copies of these books sold. And then they aren't just right sold and read, but they're read as the word of God. They're read in these religious settings. And, and then, so you have men's groups and then you've got retreats and you've got, you know, well, what do we do to disciple the men in our church or disciple the women? And so we have these weekend retreats. Well, what do we do? Well, somebody like John Eldridge has the answer. Like you can do wild at heart retreats. And, and again, this is what you do in community with other men from your church and women are off doing their women things. And this is bought or packaged and sold as this is God's word for you. This is how you are an obedient man, an obedient Christian. Mm. And, and so 
And this is how, yeah, initiation, right? So then fathers are told to bring their sons along and are taught how to model this for their sons. And they have to model something very different towards their daughters. So they might take them to a purity ball or, you know, have to be a, a different kind of model. But to their sons, um, they, they bring them up into this culture. Again, this is simply how you be a good Christian in, in these. This is how it's, it's, it's presented. And so, yes, then there's some rights, you know, this, this idea of, Raising a Modern Day Knight is the title of one book, and this was promoted by Dobson's Focus on the Family. The idea that what was lost in in modern times, this not just rites of passage, but this model of chivalry, again, protector, this noble protector who can rescue the damsel in distress. And so boys need to be brought up to know how to use guns. So they should have toy guns when they're little and then train to use real firearms as they get bigger, first BB guns, then actual guns. You might, yes, have steak dinner initiation. You might give them a plaque or a sword or very much kind of using the symbols to bring them into this idea of, of masculinity and strength and toughness. And that is how it, how being a good Christian is defined in those circles. So it's really quite elaborate and it's supported by this massive Christian publishing industry, by this massive consumer culture. And so that's something I try to always point out too. There is a lot of money changing hands here at every step of the game. And and we have to see this as a culture of consumption as much as anything else. Yeah, it, it, I think one of the things that I've always found fascinating and what you're sort of pointing to is that, well, there's, there's a few different pieces in there I think are relevant. The, the first one is that, the extremists, the fundamentalists, whether it's, you know, fundamentalist in Islamic or Christianity or whatever it is, it's like when God, your God is the God and it's on your side, you can never be wrong. And so engaging in any kind of discourse uh, with the, with the people in this, in this field that believe these beliefs that read these books that, you know, maintain this version of masculinity, they're, they're, almost is no conversation. You know, there's almost no discourse because everything outside that indoctrination is a threat to, to their version of God, to their version of what it means to be a man, to their version, how a society should be structured and ordered. And, you know, I think it's interesting because we were, my wife and I were watching Handmaid's Tale and I was like, oh my gosh, like I feel, you know, first off, good on the Canadian author, but, but secondly, it, it really feels like some sort of twisted extension of evangelical Christianity gone wrong, you know, kind of like gone off the fucking rails and been able to do whatever it wants to do. I mean, I have to confess, I have, I know this is dereliction of duty. I have not been able to bring myself to watch that. I mean, I read the book years ago, right? And given my research, I just, every time I think I really need to, I can't, not tonight, can't do it. And it, so, but here's the question. What is the relationship between the extreme and then the mainstream? And I alluded to that earlier. And I do want to come back to that because that was really the problem my research, right? Mm. As I wrote this book, I kept having that question because there are some really extreme figures in this book. And yeah, by extreme, I mean their views, very extreme. Mm-hmm. But some of these, like Mark Driscoll, are pretty mainstream. But then there are also just extreme and somewhat fringe characters in this book. So somebody like Doug Wilson, who if you're not in Christian circles, you've never heard of him. If you are in Christian circles, you you might know know him a little too well. So he lives out in Moscow, Idaho, absolutely would never 
he would be offended if he said he was mainstream evangelical, right? He prides himself on being this kind of fringe character. But what I tried to do in the book then is take characters like Doug Wilson, who is blatantly racist, misogynistic, right? And then see how they enter into these networks and alliances with mainstream respectable evangelicals, how they're platformed by places like Christianity Today, you know, more respectable figures like John Piper, you know, very much mainstream conservative evangelical, how these alliances are kind of formed and maintained and how some of these more respectable voices give cover to some of the more extreme voices. And that's really one of the things that I tried to do in this book they're not one in the same. They're very different, but they come together in these networks and alliances and really form evangelicalism today. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I th- it's interesting because I think in the book you talk about like Christ- you know, Christian camps where they're, they're talking about war and not only these initiation rights, but you know, talking about how God is is pro war. And you know, again, I just I struggle to to really find clear evidence of that when i read the bible and and the and the i think what's fascinating for me being in the like i don't know how else to sort of talk about it but within the sort of like healing modality space right really mm-hmm. focused in on wellness of any yeah. kind and, and social coherence right wellness as a byproduct of social coherence that mm-hmm. if you are well you should be able to find some level of coherence within your community within your society yeah. regardless disagreements in beliefs so long as the other person's beliefs aren't, you know, extremely dangerous or damaging to you in, in a way that they're, you know, wanting to wish harm upon you. Yeah. But I think one of the challenges that I find in a lot of this narrative and this viewpoint of masculinity from an evangelical perspective or or from from Christ, you know, warrior Christ perspective is that it almost tries to extract and cut out any any feminine qualities from a man. And I think that's the interesting part because there's there's sort of this adherence to and and combination of men and power that men in in this standpoint become synonymous with power or a very specific version of power and it's almost like a right that they're given. So can you just speak to that? And then let's transition into the impact on the nation, because that's that's some juicy stuff there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So this this idea, it is a narrow, narrow path of masculinity that's set forward and not a kind of holistic understanding. And I had a lot of poignant conversations with men as I was researching this book and even more after the book published last summer. I, I've, I, I get several letters a day still today from readers saying how particularly as men, this model was incredibly difficult to live up to for many men. It's, it's, it's a rare man who can kind of waltz into this really militant, macho ideal and be comfortable in that space. The vast majority of men struggled to live up to this, not surprisingly, right? And they are, they weren't wired this way. They aren't wired this way. And to hear their stories, and I, I, I quote a, a few of these men in the conclusion to the book, poignant stories of how they felt like second-class Christians and, and not real men because they couldn't live up to this macho ideal. That's not how they were made. That's not who they were but feeling that they really didn't have a place in their churches if they couldn't live up to this. And so some ended up walking away from their churches or walking away from the faith itself. Others 
ended, you know, kind of accepting their role as beta males, <laughs> understanding that they weren't the alpha male leaders that that were really held up as this is who ought to be leading the church. This is who ought to be leading the nation, right? So they end up kind of giving their loyalty to the alpha male in the room. Hmm. And so you can see like different dynamics. For some, it's like this is this is not working for me. I'm I'm leaving it behind. For other, they, others, they end up participating in it and actually kind of reinforcing these power structures by giving their loyalty to the men who most kind of live into this machismo or, or really just the militancy. And so you see, you see those dynamics. And, but you're right that this, this kind of wholeness is, is not what, what they're after. And this, uh, this ideal of masculinity rests upon you need an enemy, right? If, if, Every man has a battle to fight, and that is essential to being a Christian man. Mm. Then you need enemies, right? You need those enemies because otherwise, where's your battle going to come from? And so it depends on it, and you have to keep perpetuating. You have to keep finding enemies because otherwise you can't prove your manhood, and that's what it is to be a Christian man. That's what it is to be a Christian if you're a man. Yes. I mean, thank you for that. That's very well said. And I, you know, I think one of the interesting things is that we, I think from a psychological pr perspective, you know, again, I'll, I'll refer to Jung. He's, he's just one of my, one of my faves, but I think many psychologists would say, but, but specifically Jung talked about the inner civil war that we have. And what I see happening within the evangelical space is that that inner civil war is eradicated and externalized that, yeah. that it's sort of projected out onto the world and, that that all of a sudden this moving target right it, you know today it's transgender people or i mean whatever the case may be right there's a whole bunch of mexicans coming over the border et cetera, et cetera. It's, there's there's a always a new sort of target for the evangelical to externalize again not all of them right. but certain certain sort of fundamentalist extremists to externalize that threat and I think what's interesting is that it almost is from a place of needing to reaffirm or shore up the, the sense of masculinity and the idea that you are more you are more of a man by adhering to the doctrine, adhering to the discipline, right? That there is a direct correlate between your capacity as a man to adhere to the to the strict rigors of what's laid out within the doctrine. And you are less than a man if you are not willing or not wanting or not capable to sort of follow that rigid ideology. Okay, tell me about the impact on the nation, because I think that has been something that you know, we've certainly witnessed over the past however many years. And so I'm just going to let just hand over the torch to you and, and let you take that where you'd like. Yeah, I think you've already hinted at this, and, and this is the second part of the subtitle, so Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. And, and it really does come down to this, this us versus them mentality, right? That, that if, if every man is a battle to fight, you, you need, you need enemies. It's required, and you, you've got to continually manufacture enemies to maintain this militancy. And so what we see is, is I mean, the effects of this over decades not trusting outsiders. I mean, somebody like Mark Driscoll was very explicit about, first of all, he really liked to have the security apparatus right, in his church to, to visibly project the sense of ever-present threat, like a threat of violence, of physical violence. So he had his security team on his side, you know, flanking him, you know, men volunteering for security detail would warn them, you don't, don't go to that church down the road 
right? Even even fellow Christians, right? That's you're you're likely to get a false gospel there, and you'll be you know, damned for all eternity. So so the threat is very real. <laughs> I just I can't imagine Christ walking around with a fucking SWAT team. Like I just exactly. I'm like where exactly like, what? Like it's just anyway. I know I'm I like it, it's one of the things that I like very much have like passionate expression against, but sorry, carry on. No, and yet, right, this is more common than you realize even today. A lot of churches, now there's there's consulting firms for security, there are security cameras, there are churches that have, you know, armed guards. This is a thing. This is very much a thing. And it it, it, it all fits together here. And so so what you also have is this this you know long standing perception of the other or of, of outsiders as again against us. If you are not with us, you are against us. And so what I what I found looking back is, you know, decades ago already, you have conservative evangelical leaders warning Christians about the the secular media. Like, do not read Time and Newsweek. You know, somebody like Tim LaHaye long ago was warning Christians, oh, we need, we need our, uh, we need a fourth news network, he said, right? We need a Christian news network. And then Fox News kind of fills, fills the bill. We need our own radio, right? We need Christian radio, Christian news. And, and that's interesting because it, it, it not only kind of, reinforces the narrative, right? Shapes the narrative for conservative evangelicals. But again, always follow the money. And there is also a ton of money being made within this conservative evangelical subculture, within these media empires. And so it is in their financial interest, as well as this kind of, there's their ideological purposes for telling Christians not to trust the media, don't trust secular news, like lamestream media. They're going to be lying to you. There's this idea to get kind of technical, kind of presuppositionalism, the idea that that all truth is God's truth. And so those of us who know God have access to truth. Mm-hmm. Those who don't know God can't possibly have access to truth, like really about anything. So why would you want to go over into those spaces and hear what they have to say about social issues, about politics, about anything really, certainly about gender, right? We have God's truth here. So that's why we stay within the fold. And that's why we need to consume products that are are produced by fellow Christians who share this worldview, as they call it, right? So there's a long history to this of perceiving those outside the fold, and that fold can be defined sometimes really quite narrowly, as untrustworthy, as ungodly, as actually working against our interests, working against God's interests, working to undermine the foundations of Christian America as we understand it. So why would you want to not just go to those folks, but why would you want to empower them in any way? Why would you even want to allow them to vote, frankly, to shape our nation because we know that they are against us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I hear maybe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but almost like what you're pointing towards is this subtle and not so subtle in certain instances, dehumanization of people that are outside, like really substantial dehumanization of people that are outside of that belief system. And I think what's interesting is what we've seen over the last however many years that social media has made it abundantly accessible and much easier to allow sort of extreme belief sets and extreme organizations to not only find a new level of 
communication, but a new capacity to sort of indoctrinate people and bring them into the fold and spread their sort of memetics, you know, to spread their ideologies mm-hmm. through. And I, and I think that evangelicals have done a really, I mean, good in quotation marks, they've done a really good job of that because it's just very simple, right? I mean, if you look at some of the, when I look at the memes and some of the content that is being put forward, it's just so simple. And so the average person that is living in a time, great chaos, great disorder, mass confusion, where it's very hard to sort of make meaning within our culture and our society, it's something to grasp onto. And it's, and it's something concrete. And I think that's the interesting part about this is that it, it is very concrete and there's something that is structurally quite solid within the way that they operate. So, so maybe what I, my next question that maybe we'll just wrap up here, cause I know that we, we were running out of time, although I feel like you might have to come back on so we can continue down this pathway. T- talk to me a little bit about the impact that that dehumanization has had within American culture. Hmm. Yeah. You know, you, you can see that, um, that conservative evangelicals have have tended to put up a lot of boundaries, a lot of walls, right? Boundaries around orthodoxy, boundaries around who is a a real Christian, a real American, racial boundaries right, are, are part of this, LGBTQ identity issues also. And so I think that this this boundary making, both in terms of orthodoxy, but then in terms, you know, their understanding of the good. I can't say common good because it's not a common good. It's a it's a understanding that the good of the nation is linked to the good of their understanding of Christian America, right? And so mm-hmm. things like religious liberty are interpreted through that lens. You know, our freedom to to pursue our faith, which is at the center of American identity because of Christian nationalism, right? And so it is this kind of exclusive perception. That said, if the other, however we define it, in terms of race, sexuality, right, converts into our spaces, into our ideology, then they are welcome. And that's where things get kind of tricky, right? Because in terms of race, many conservative evangelicals do not in any way perceive themselves to be racist because they would welcome somebody who is not white, who walks into their church doors, right? And wants to join them in that space on their terms, right? Because that, that is salvation. And that is, you know, you're now one of us, Mm -hmm. but, you know, on the outside, you know, to, to work on other people's terms, understand other people's understanding of, of flourishing of justice, right? That's, that's where, where um, the tension lies. And so I think that sometimes conversations can be very fraught with white evangelicals, with conservative evangelicals who genuinely think what they are doing is for the good and do not understand how it is, in fact, in many cases, utterly dehumanizing. Uh, You know, their own narratives tell them that they are the persecuted Americans. And, And they truly, you know, survey data bears this out. They think that they are more persecuted in the United States, that conservative white evangelicals are more persecuted than than Muslim Americans. Right. This is their understanding that they again, have the stories that they have told themselves, that we are the faithful remnant and that everybody's out to get us and we are doing what we can to preserve this nation and to preserve God's truth. That is is 
is their world. And so it's really hard to, to see how they are actually being perceived by many others, which is that they are harming, that they are excluding, that they are dehumanizing, which only adds to this, this persecution narrative, right? That they are out to get us. And, and so it, it really is a fraught conversation right now within evangelicalism and between evangelicals and, and other Americans. But it is one of the things that I was not not prepared for when I started this research was just how authoritarian some of these tendencies were within evangelicalism. The emphasis on authority and on who has a right to that authority, what that looks like, and who does not have a right to that. Frankly, I was I was quite shocked by what I was uncovering going way back to the 1970s and, and tracing that up to the present. And so some of our contemporary debates around you know, voting rights, around protecting the Constitution, the events of January 6th, all of that makes sense in terms of this longer history. That sounds like a good place to put a pin in today's conversation, but also a potential uh, sequel to our conversation, you know, to to sort of track some of that, because I, I feel like that is a very relevant, very relevant conversation. Kristen, thank you so much for joining me. This was a wonderful conversation. And where can people go to find out more about you, your work, and, and maybe check out this book? Sure. So my website is kristendumay.com. Dumay is D-U-M-E-Z. So it's a tricky one. On social media, I have an author page on Facebook at KK Dumay, K-K-D-U-M-E-Z. And I'm mostly out on Twitter. So every day, every hour, you can find me on Twitter. And the book, Jesus and John Wayne, is available pretty much every place, especially when the paperback releases very soon. It should not be hard to find. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. We'll have all the links for that in the show notes. For everyone that's out there, don't forget to share this episode with somebody that you know will find this conversation wildly fascinating. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Connor Beaton signing off.